Thank you, Vanessa. This summer we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels that begin the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Eyewitness accounts from the disciples who traveled for three years with Jesus, and they record there what they saw Jesus do, what, they, what he said, how he behaved. And Mark uh, is perhaps the most vivid, based on the memories of Peter, a fisherman. It is the simplest language. Peter was an illiterate man, uneducated. And he doesn't adorn his account. He doesn't try to interpret what he's seeing. He just says, I saw Jesus do this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. So it's very direct, it's very vivid, it's very clean. And we've seen the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He was baptized and tempted. He began to teach and amaze the leaders of Israel. First with his teaching with authority from scripture, then his authority uh, to heal and drive out demons. He's challenged the definition of holy people by including in his 12 disciples people who would have been considered unholy, unclean by the religious leaders. And in the last few Sundays, we've seen the beginning of Jesus' teaching, a distinctive way of teaching using parables, ideally suited to illiterate people who didn't have anything to write down and record what Jesus said. And so Jesus plants these little seeds in their head, little stories that unfold as they think about them, as they share them, as they remember them, and explain who Jesus is and why he came. He starts by talking about the kingdom and about how it advances. We've seen him talk about God as a sower of the seed, the seed being the word of God, being Jesus Christ as God's word, God's communication to the world. And now he continues with that theme as he talks about the kingdom. If you look in your bulletin, verse 26. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is Jesus continuing to teach his disciples and intimate followers. This is what the kingdom is like. Every now and again, you might experience uh, a non-Christian friend or neighbor or co-worker ask you, what is Christianity? What is the gospel? What is it you believe? And it's an intimidating question. I mean, this is a big, thick book. There is a lot of stuff in it. Where do you start? How do you begin? Well, if you'd asked Jesus when he began his ministry, if you'd asked him what he was all about, he would have replied, and we've already seen this in, in the first chapter of Mark, the kingdom of God has come near, repent, and believe the good news. Jesus' explanation of what he is and what is happening is that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is the king. And he invites people. It starts with Israel, but the invitation will spread out to the whole world. He invites people to repent, that is, turn or return to God, turn back, and embrace himself, Jesus, as the king, Lord of the kingdom. And in the kingdom, of course, 
heart, mind, and soul, all agendas, all power, everything comes together in the king. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, that's what we're saying. Jesus is the king, his kingdom is here, and I am now a member of his kingdom, a subject of his kingdom. And I am going to align myself with the kingdom, with the work of the king. And then he gives an example. He's, he gives uh, another parable. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Now we've already heard the parable of the sower, in which the sower is God, who sows the seed, his word, Jesus, into the world, into the hearts of men and women. But this man is just a man, it appears. He does not know how the seed grows. Certainly God would know. So this is an ordinary man. And we've learned from the previous parable that the seed is God's word, the Bible. And the Bible says that Jesus is the word of God, God's communication, God's revelation of himself to the world. So this man is sharing Jesus. When he's scattering seed, he's sharing the person of Jesus. That's what the seed is. It's the gospel being shared and planted in other people. Night and day, whether he sleeps or not, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Notice that all the man has to do is scatter the seed. That is, share the gospel, share Jesus. He doesn't have to do anything else. He doesn't have to understand everything else. When a faithful Christian speaks about Jesus in any way, God can and will use that. Because his gospel, his word, Jesus, has power. It has a miraculous power. And once it is spoken, scattered, it will achieve God's purposes. We saw last week how in Isaiah, God says that his word is given to the world with a purpose and shall not return to him without fulfilling that purpose. You also remember last week, by the way, I told you how when I was becoming a pastor, I was cut to the quick when a pastor asked me how many people had I led to Jesus. I'd only been a Christian a few years at that point, and I thought I was a complete failure. He was laying the responsibility of converting people on me. Well, I don't think that that's a fair burden. I don't even know how to save myself. I need a savior, let alone other people. And what we are learning here is it is not Tonys of the world that save others. It is God, God's word, working in the lives of people. Verse 28. All by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. The seed knows its business. You know, when I moved uh, two years or so ago into my current apartment, there was a scrap of backyard out the back, untended for years. And when I moved in, the realtor shied away from it, a little embarrassed. It was just blocking the windows. It was head high. It was dead stalks. Good for a dog, nothing else. 
she muttered about maybe a landscaper. Well, for a while I let it stay there. And then I brought a bag of seeds. Uh, it was online, $12, a mix of wildflowers native to New Jersey. And I scattered them to see what would happen. And I forgot about them almost immediately. Nothing seemed to happen. I didn't water them. I didn't fertilize them. I provided no care at all for them. But that handful of tiny, dull seeds knew its business. And although I had no participation in it, underground, hidden from me and everybody, there was a miracle unfolding. Tiny, apparently dead seeds. And yet, they were using earth and water and air and sublimating it in some miraculous way into the stuff of life. Dead matter, dead earth, learning the chemistry and the rhythms necessary for germination and new life. A dead garden turning itself into a place of color and beauty because that's what happened. A few months later, these little shoots started to come up. At random, it appeared. And they're all different kinds, all different shapes, different colors. Some were all stalks, some were all leaves. And all spring and summer, they've been producing flowers in my garden. You know, if you want to know what his past, your pastor spends his time doing, well, know this, that uh, pretty much every morning now, with a good cup of coffee, I sit and watch my garden grow. Every day, there's a new flower blooming. Now I've got butterflies. They're all different colors. Some, the, the, the combinations and the shapes and the structures are just remarkable. I can sit there and just contemplate them. It's a form of prayer almost for me. Not almost, it is. The awe at what God is doing in my dead backyard. That's what a seed does. It has packed within it a power, an energy, a plan, an ability to grow and create these beautiful shapes and, and structures and colors. As soon as the grape is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. One thing that surprised me about my garden is how different these flowers are. Some were very short, close to the earth. They flowered early. Others are beautiful, high, slender stalks with these tiny little red flowers on them. They're all different. They're all blooming at different times. Every day, the garden is different. It's wonderful. And it reminds me, there is no rush with God. You know, we have a wonderful uh, children's program here. Uh, I had nothing to do with creating it. Uh, Gary Lawrence, one of our elders, uh, and Rachel have put together this amazing program. And one of the things that Gary taught me early on was this wonderful expression he has. When the children are rushed or feverish or trying to do something too quickly, he always says, slow down. There is plenty of time. God gave us this world. God knows exactly what we need to do in this world. And there is plenty of time for everything we want to achieve. There is no rush. You don't have to rush anywhere. Similarly, when you scatter seed, when you share the gospel, don't worry about 
seeing nothing happen. You do not know the timetable. There is no accidents with God. Everybody receives the gospel at a different time in a different way. I was 30 years old when I became a Christian. That's pretty rare. Many of you were Christians when you were tiny. It's good to remember that we are bearing God's fruit, not our fruit. Nobody starts too soon. Nobody starts too late. There are no tragedies or shortcuts that undermine what God is doing in your life and in my life. Nobody ever dies too soon. Nothing is wasted. There are no mistakes. Like the flowers, we are God's creation. We live and we breathe in his world. We live in his time and according to his timing. God's kingdom is here. It is advancing. The king has returned. And the world and everything in it is unfolding just as it should. There is nothing to fear. There is nothing to rush. It's happening. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Why would Jesus compare his kingdom to a mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds that were used back in that day? Because there is something about Christianity that is a little absurd and makes no sense and seems almost trivial. Christianity contradicts everything that the world believes about power, about success, about influence. For many people, it is foolishness, irrelevant, weak. Jesus came into the world not as a man of influence in a family of influence. He came to ordinary parents on the outskirts, the periphery of this great empire, Rome. He had no armies, no wealth, no attendance. He was born in a stable with animals and shepherds around him, no riches, no pomp, nothing. His disciples, his early followers, were all uneducated, relatively powerless people. They didn't come from the centers of power. In fact, the centers of power despised him and plotted to kill him. Jesus himself, the first seed planted, died a hideous death on the cross. Betrayed, naked, abandoned, and alone. Everything he had built with his disciples over three years collapsed. They all ran away. Even, Jesus, even Peter, the rock on which he was going to build his church, denied him. How is this good news when you look at it? How could this possibly be attractive? The Apostle Paul says this, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. One thing that is unusual about Christianity is that it has always been attractive to the outcast. When, the Christ when Christianity began to spread in the Roman Empire, it wasn't attractive to the powers the elites, 
It was attractive to the slaves. It was particularly attractive to women. Many women who were powerless at that time became Christians. The early church was largely feminine. Christianity has never been spread by the sword because the sword counteracts is a contradiction to the grace that Christianity requires. Christianity is a love affair with God. We have a relationship of love, not of terror. There's nothing forced about Christianity. And in fact, if you look at history, Christianity has often spread through its defeats or the defeats of the culture in which it was. In the early days, the Goths, Visigoths, and Vandals became Christians. You know, they were repeatedly attacking Rome and the provinces of Rome. And oftentimes, they captured Christians. They took them back as slaves. And through these Christian slaves, they were converted. St. Patrick, I don't know if you know this, St. Patrick was a good Englishman. He was a Christian deacon. He was captured by the Irish and made a slave in Ireland. And yet, after he escaped, he went back and converted Ireland to Christianity, famously. Christianity, this seed that is planted, might seem weak. It might seem all about foolishness. It is the opposite of power and conquest. And yet, it has spread remarkably. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. It is a remarkable fact that Christianity, starting in the periphery of the Roman Empire, spread through that empire like wildfire and has spread around the world. And although it might seem a little embattled in America right now and in Europe, right now in China, hundreds of millions of Christians are growing the church there. All over Asia, the Christian church is growing. In Africa, in South America. The Christian church right now is going, undergoing a renaissance. The word of God, the seed that has been planted, is growing. The kingdom is growing, whether we acknowledge it or not. Because it has its own agenda, its own plan, its own energy. So the question, so what? All very interesting, no doubt. But what has that got to do with you and I right now? What has it got to do with us today? Well, people come to church for many reasons. But if you are here this morning at this service, there is a good chance that a divine seed has been planted in your soul by God. Many of you, perhaps not all of you. But many of you, what does that mean that one of these seeds has been planted in you? Well, if God is real, and that seed, by the way, is his revelation of who he is. It is part of knowing that God is real. If God is real, then Jesus is the king of God's kingdom on earth. Jesus is Lord. And... That divine seed inside you, that's been planted in you, is claimed by him. It is, it's the part of you that has been claimed by God, by Jesus, our king. You and I 
are not naturally special. There's nothing unordinary about us. What is distinctive is that seed that has been planted because that is divine. It doesn't grow naturally. You don't get the seed of God's word planted in you by sitting on a mountaintop and meditating. It is not the product of study or contemplation. It is not the product of worldly wisdom or striving. It had to be sown personally in you and in me. It means that God wants you. It is his gift and his claim on your life. It is his invitation and call. So what does that mean? It means that there is a spiritual battle going on in you and in me. It is happening right now, right now in this room. There is a battle at the very center of your soul and my soul. We split personalities. One part now has a relationship with God. But there is another part, perhaps the largest part, that is still in love and in relationship with everything of this world that is not God. The Bible talks about this in many ways. It talks about the old nature and the new nature. It talks about the old man and the new man. It talks about the old Adam and the new Adam. The Apostle Paul put it vividly in his letter to the Christians in Rome. I do not understand what I do. For, I, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Doesn't that sound completely schizophrenic? He's talking about himself. His inner soul is inner being. And it is not this beautiful, united hall of harmony and goodness. It is a battlefield. It's a battlefield between that part of him that is in relationship with God, that is now holy, that is now aligned with God and God's purposes. Jesus is Lord of that part of him. And the other part of him, his old nature, his old habits, his old, his old patterns of behavior, the life without God, that's still there. And they're fighting with each other. What can we do? Well, what did Jesus say? Repent. The kingdom of God is near. Repent means to turn or return to God. If that's the old man, you turn away from the old and you orient yourself to the new. You look to God rather than the things of this world for your meaning, for your happiness, for your purpose, for your security. How does that help? How does turning to God help you and me right now? Well, when we confess, and we did that during our service, you notice, when we repent, what are we doing? We are identifying what is wrong with us. 
our sin, our ugliness, the things that are unholy, ungodly. We are revealing those part of ourselves that are unaligned with God. We're identifying them, we're sharing them, and we're turning away from them. What does revealing sin and ugliness do? It reveals the cost, the suffering that Jesus underwent on the cross, because on the cross he put our sin to death. So confession reveals sin. Our sin reveals the cost of Christ's love on the cross. And Jesus' willingness to go to the cross reveals God's love for us. Well, God loves us. So what? So do our mothers. Life goes on. What difference does that make? Well, remember where we are. We're in this battle, this struggle. We're schizophrenic Christians trying to live out our new natures in relationship to God, but carrying the baggage of our own life that still holds on, kicking and screaming, all those temptations, all those old pleasures, all those vices we remember so fondly. We enjoy our vices. We enjoy our old life. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep returning to it. How do we make that turn? How do we turn away from our old life? Just saying no is not going to cut it. If it was just a question of us needing an example or a teaching, we wouldn't need Jesus to be our savior. We would need somebody like Buddha who could teach us a new way of life. How do we turn from the old to the new? Well, there's a wonderful sermon about this by Jonathan Edwards, one of the great early American theologians. And he, his sermon, one of his sermons, was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Great title. And his point was, if you just try as an act of will to turn away from something that is tempting you, then it's all about how willful you are. It's about your strength. It's about your ability. And I don't know about you, but I know enough about myself that while I was young, I thought I had a tremendous force of will. As I've got older, I've realized I don't. When you get tired, when you get fed up, when you feel weak and lonely and miserable, those old habits beckon. Just saying no does not work. What you need is to turn away from an old affection, an old delight, an old fond habit, and replace it with a new affection, with something new to desire, something beautiful, something that is more beautiful than those old habits, and that is Jesus. What is the gospel? It is Jesus on the cross revealing God's love to you. And as you dwell on that, as that becomes real, as you pray, as you worship, as you spend time in that new relationship, the old begins to wither. The Puritans talked about it as mortification of the flesh, that is putting to death the old man and living more and more in this new life in relationship to God. And by the way, there will be a day where that old life dies. 
And all that will remain of you is the new life, the new nature, the new spiritual man that has been given you by God. All your old life will die one day. All that will survive in the future is this new life, this new nature. And so that's where your future is. That's what it means to grow as a Christian, to live more and more in this new life that has been planted in you, this seed that is growing. In a moment, we're going to go to the table. The table is a means of Christian grace. Why? Because as you meditate on what it means that the bread is Christ's body and the cup is his blood, as you meditate on the cost of Jesus setting this table for you, as you see the depth of his love, you will also see the depth of your own sin. And as that becomes blacker, as that becomes darker and deeper, God's grace, God's love is revealed more and more. The gospel is Jesus. And it's why he's here in the table this morning. And I invite you, if you've never thought about it before, as you eat his body, as you drink his blood, think of what it reveals. Think of what it reveals about how much he loves you. Think of what it reveals about what he is worth to you. And as you do that, that new affection will grow. That's what the table is all about. We're going to go there right now, but first let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a savior, not just an example, not just a teacher. You are the hero who has fought the battles that we cannot fight, who has revealed to us God's love, who has shown us the way back home. Lord, we can scarcely grasp what it means. As we come to your table this morning, we ask that you reveal yourself afresh to us, that we taste the sweetness of what you have done for us, that we are filled with your spirit, that our lives grow in affection towards you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and join us in all the heavenly chorus singing holy to our God. Everything I've said depends on the reality of God. This is your time to think, to ponder, to meditate on what God means to you. Is he real in your life? If he is, this table is set for you this morning. If you're still not sure, 
then we have a confession of faith here. If you can affirm this confession, this table is set for you this morning. Christians, what do you believe? I, I believe, believe in God, God the Father, Father Almighty, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Would those of you helping me serve please come forward? Everybody else, feel free to sit down. On the same night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. 